we are going to work our way through Matthew 25. For those of you that are visitors, let me just mention that you will have an outline on the back of the handouts we gave to you. And uh, you will also see there's a link to PrestonwoodExamine.org, and you can find these materials there. And what I always like to do is cover some of the things that the church encourages us to do. And at the end, since this one talks about loving our neighbor and we have such a problem with tribalism, I want to mention a book that addresses that. And then at the very end, two other books. This is something that even non-Christians are saying, we've got a real problem right now with division in the culture and society. And so in some respects, what we're going to be applying today uh, really is so relevant to what we'll be talking about. The first 13 verses, and actually as we go through this, we're going to be looking at three parables Jesus uses to explain what the kingdom of God is like and what we should be like and how we should be dedicated and be watching for uh, the return of Christ. We need to be ready when Christ comes. And the first of those, interestingly enough, really kind of gets us into the whole idea of being ready. Uh, So we're going to talk about three parables. These are what uh, sometimes in theological circles we call inaugurated eschatology. Big words. I like to give you a word every once in a while. Eschatology is future things. And here, this is the idea that there are two parts to God's kingdom. The first part, which we see on the screen, is what was ushered in when Jesus came in his first coming. Defeating sin and death on the cross. And I thought Daryl Starbridge did such a great job of explaining that. And those of us that have gone to the men's retreat have had a chance to hear him. Of course, I've had a chance to interview him as well. When that is what is in the past. But we also look to the future in which the uh, actual vanquishing of all sin, death, disease, and everything will take place. When Christ will come again and conquer our enemies, rid the world of evil, reign on the throne. And so it is a background in which sometimes people say, well, is the kingdom now or is it in the future? Yes, it is in partially now. It is already here, but it is not yet. And actually, these parables help us kind of understand that in a little more detail. But the first one, interestingly enough, uh, kind of continues that theological point. And that is that there seems to, I think, especially the first century believers, but even now believers in the 21st century, when's Jesus going to come back? Because he seems like he's been delayed and they were expecting it to be the case. You know, last week uh, or week before when I was talking with Michael Card, he pointed out that there was this myth that was running around the church that um, actually existed after the fall of Jerusalem, that one of the disciples would still be alive when Jesus returned. And since at that point, their best estimates are that John was maybe in his 90s, they were thinking that John the Apostle would not die before Jesus returned. So you can see that there was still this anxious expectation in the first century that Jesus would come back again. Well, Jesus, in order to do that, tells a parable about a wedding. And to understand that, we see that we're talking about the kingdom of God is like ten virgins. Five were foolish, five were wise, and it tells us in some respects what's taking place. Let me take you back to the first century. In the first century, you had two phases to a wedding. 
The first, you have what is called the betrothal. That's where the bride was considered to be legally married, but still lived in the father's house. And then you actually had the formal marriage ceremony, and that's where the bride was then taken to the house of the groom and was accompanied by a procession of bridesmaids, groomsmen, family, and friends. Now, to understand the illustration that Jesus uses is most of the time, not always, but according to the commentaries I read, most of the time the wedding procession would take place at night. Okay, nobody has a flashlight, we don't have street lights, so what they would do is they would have sticks which were wrapped in oily rags, and they'd set those on fire, and those torches then, as they would march at night, would be able to give light. And these torches probably only lasted about, many people think, about 15 minutes before they'd have to wrap it with more oiled cloth and bring extra oil. And there, now you can see, is the difference between the wise who took flasks of oil and the foolish who did not. And in the story that Jesus tells, the procession was delayed. Have you ever seen a delay in a wedding? I mean, you know, I've been to a few of your parent, kids' weddings, and sometimes they're right on target. Sometimes they're delayed. And that isn't just a 21st century situation. Sometimes it was a 1st century situation. And but as a result, because of the delay, the foolish bridemaids, they were unprepared for that. They didn't have enough oil. And you might say, well, they asked for oil from the uh, wise ones. But the wise ones say, if we use, give you oil, then none of us will have oil. We won't have enough to continue. And then you get this strange comment at the end, which might be kind of interesting, because it says, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Well, that was actually just kind of a, an idiom uh, that was used at the time. It means uh, you have so disgraced our family. It's not like I don't know you. Of course, I know who you are. But I'm going to act as if I don't know you because you've insulted the family and you've no longer recognized the value of the relationship. There are certain times when you did not want to engage in a social faux pas, and a wedding was one of those times. And so Jesus uses an illustration that was very familiar to them and helped them understand kind of what we're talking about. You might say, okay, how does that relate to us today? That's a first century parable. How does it relate today? A couple points. I think the point of the parable is be prepared. Uh, Just like the foolish um, bridesmaid did not have enough oil, We have to make sure that we're not foolish and just going on about our life. Um, Daryl Strawberry gave us a great illustration. From the world's point of view, he was really successful, wasn't he? I mean, winning all sorts of awards, um, RBIs, home runs, uh, World Series, all the rest. But by his own admission, lived a very foolish life. And then, of course, now we should make sure that we're not leading a foolish life, but we should be prepared. It may seem to us, and maybe even people we witness to, well, where's Jesus, you know? As a matter of fact, there's a statement in First Peter where people are just saying, you know, where is the, it's coming? We've been waiting for it for all this time. But also that we need to be prepared for his return. I put this up there, you know, you get yourself in a lot of trouble when you go to prophecy conferences and say, you know, it's quite possible Jesus won't return for another thousand years. But that is theoretically true, or it could happen any day. 
Um, as I've been traveling around, I think more and more people are starting to say, you know, I do feel really close to the return of Christ. What do you think about that? And I say, well, there's a lot of prophetic indicators that we looked at last week on Matthew 24 about that. But nevertheless, I think the illustration here, don't want to draw too much out of the parable, but certainly the obvious implication is be prepared. The second one's a little bit different. It is the parable of the talents. And it goes on for quite some time. But again, you're probably familiar with this from verses 14 to 30. Again, since we have so many of you that have read the Bible before, I want to uh, cover some of the things that you probably know and then maybe add a few points that maybe would be unusual or new. And the first, of course, is not only should we be ready, but we are show that we're ready by actually using our time our talent, and our treasure. Because after all, he uses the example of your talents to these individuals, but that's the idea. And so he expects us to invest our resources to build and grow his kingdom, not just to build up our financial situation or to have nothing but a life of leisure that never actually advances the kingdom. And so, in some respects, he was trying to help the disciples recognize that they weren't supposed to just simply sit around waiting for his return. Think about this for just a minute. Why would he say that then? Because he needed to say it again. Remember when Jesus dies, he is up from the grave, resurrection's taken place, he's appeared to them. Where do they show up next? Well, they're back in Galilee fishing. And he has to show up to him again. In other words, it's kind of like, okay, business as usual. Now we know uh, we're saved and thank you very much. No, he wanted them to understand that they have a responsibility, uh, that in between that, they should be expanding the kingdom. And I think what he was basically saying is, don't be so preoccupied by my coming that you're not occupying till I come. And if that was true in the first century, I think it's still true today in the 21st century. And so, in some respects, he also helps us understand that we are to be stewards of the resources that have been given to us. If you're taking some notes, I put this one down because Paul in 1 Corinthians puts it this way. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. The idea of slavery. Our time, our talents, our money, our families, our homes, our schedules all belong to God. And so he ultimately says, so glorify God in your body. And so that's kind of the idea. And so the story here, interestingly enough, is about three servants. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. And it's interesting that he gives it to them, as it goes on to say, according to his ability. Now there's a spiritual principle here where the master doesn't give them more than they can handle. Maybe the implication is God isn't always going to give you more than you can handle in terms of responsibility. We don't know, but certainly that could be an implication you could draw from that. The amount that you have um, been given doesn't matter. It's what you do with what you have been given. Matter of fact, if you're mayor faithful with small things, God may give you what? Greater things. That's an obvious principle. Now, I was trying to get a sense of the what this money is, and commentaries come to different conclusions, but this one I thought was most helpful. A talent in the first century was probably worth 20 years' worth of salary for a day laborer. So let's talk about hitting the money load, okay, hitting the uh, winning the lottery kind of thing. So somebody ran it out and said, okay, if you look at minimum wage for a day laborer, somebody's working at minimum wage, it would be like giving that person who's making seven and a half dollars an hour, 
$300,000. Can you get the perspective on that? Well, that means the one that got five talents, he got $1.5 million. The second servant got $600,000. So you can see that maybe when Jesus is saying this, the eyes of the disciples go, wow, what is that? They have been given remarkable benefits and opportunities to use resources far beyond what they could possibly have imagined uh, to invest, according to the story. And I think the implication of this is, is God has given us an enormous allotment of time. Now, for some of you, maybe an enormous amount of financial resources or a numerous number of gifts. But whatever it is, your time, talent, and resources come from the Lord. And what are you doing with these wealth of benefits that you have? And certainly, we should be entrusting whatever God has given us, our time, our talent, our treasure to the Lord. And encourages us, if you think about this, to think big. Some of you have ever read some of the books on good to greater. They talk about the BHAG, big, hairy, uh, audacious goals and ideas. And that's exactly what he is actually using here as an illustration. Well, let's continue on. What do the first two servants do? Well, they go out there and they're the entrepreneurs. And so they are engaged in all sorts of different activities here because one went out and uh, took those five talents, traded with them and made five talents more. The one with two talents tells us uh, that he made two talents more. And so that's what the first two did. But what did the third person do? He buried it. He buried his talent. Now, I looked in one of the commentaries and said, actually, that was pretty typical for that day. There were some real questions about how honest some of these bankers would be, um, whether or not they would skim too much off. So it wasn't like it wasn't ever happening that somebody would bury their talent. But here Jesus uses that, that some of us have talents that we buried. We don't use them for the Lord. And he did so, it tells us, not out of obedience, but out of fear. He was so afraid to lose what he had, even missed the opportunity to double it. And so now we see the obvious implication. Look at what he says, of course, to the first two that indeed were there, because he says, uh, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And so, again, a word and a phrase that we would want to hear at the end of our lives. And so he praised them, um, just not necessarily for their bottom line, that they doubled it, but more to their faithfulness. It isn't so much the work that matters, it's how, indeed, you are working to do what God has given you in your place of ministry as well. And so those who invested their resources were actually not only going to benefit from the resources they doubled, but now they enter into what? The riches of the master. And so that is the case because they recognize the talents didn't necessarily belong to them. They were just stewards. But now, because of their faithfulness, they enter into all the blessings of the master. And I thought another good example of that you see in Romans 8. Here Paul talks about the fact that we are no longer slaves, we're no longer just servants, we are part of the family and we will inherit from God all the things that are the benefit of that. If not in this life, certainly in the next. A couple of the key verses that came to mind in Matthew 6, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, of storing up treasures in heaven. 
um, by investing in the kingdom of God rather than their own kingdoms. And in Romans 12, 1 and 2, a passage that, interesting enough, Daryl Strawberry used today, he looked at the part about you not being conformed to this world, but the first part of that verse talks about the fact that we are a living sacrifice in Romans 12. So we certainly covered that. Last one, very quickly, is on the final judgment. Up until now, these are principles we apply as we find ourselves in what is called the church age. But now, as we look ahead to this final judgment, what does that look like? And that's, again, something which is very striking, because immediately Jesus begins to talk about the things that you can begin to do. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And it's tempting sometimes to think what Jesus is saying is, well, then you have to just do all these works to achieve salvation. I think we are a grace-oriented church enough you know that's not exactly what's being said here. But it is picking up what James talks about, that if indeed you love God, you're going to love people. Indeed, if you are saved, there's going to be some evidence of your salvation, and that is faith without works is dead. If we love Jesus, we're going to care for his people. And certainly loving God and loving people go together. And so he now then talks about the fact that there will be the Son of Man who will come. And that's a phrase, if you're taking notes, that goes all the way back to Daniel 7. This today doesn't strike us as so um, much of a claim to deity. Think Son of Man, okay. But no, Son of Man was this heavenly vision that Daniel, as he looks into heaven, sees this idea of what I guess would be the pre-incarnate Christ and here, the Son of Man was given authority over all of the nations and is called the Ancient of Days. Daniel 7 relates very much to what we see in Revelation 20 and 21. But nevertheless, in this particular case, Jesus sits on his glorious throne and judges the nations. If you go and look at the literature of the rabbis, I'm always looking for some things that might work if you have Jewish friends. You go and look at the rabbinic literature. There is a statement about this ancient of days is the king. He's the judge. He judges the nations. And when Jesus claims that that's me, that's another argument for Jesus claiming divinity, claiming to be God. Uh, if you deal with people in cults, sometimes they will sometimes say, well, Jesus was, you know, an exalted one. He might have even been an angel. Uh, he was firstborn, but he's not God. No, this is a very, again, very direct claim to deity. One of the many, many examples where Jesus claims to be God. Let's go on, because if nothing else, then he also says that at the judgment you have something kind of interesting. Because notice here, going back to verse 33, he places the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. What about that? Well, first of all, there's nothing inherently bad or evil about goats, so don't take that the wrong way. That's, a, a, I think, a very poor application of this. But there is a sense in which he's helping them understand that there are sheep and then there are goats. And this would be helpful because sheep are oftentimes represented as the people of God. And so it isn't necessarily that, okay, the sheep are Jews and the Gentiles are goats, because we've already seen that there is a great opportunity for, of course, the Gentiles to come as well. So the individual sheep and goats get separated. And that is, again, a very interesting principle. 
Sometimes we have people say, if God exists, why doesn't God deal with evil in the world? Why doesn't he just destroy all the evil people in the world? Well, first of all, that'd be all of us, right? So we get back to that point. But more importantly, God will allow the wheat to grow among the tares and separate them later. God will allow the sheep and the goats to cave together. And so that is the case. And so when he talks about separating the sheep and goats, I think it's very interesting because in some respects, that's what a shepherd would do at night anyway. Matter of fact, I think I even posted up there. Um, I guess I had that in the back one because that's one of the things that happened. When, of course, it was cool at night, they would separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep uh, were fine in the open air because they have a lot of wool. The goats, they got cold. And so you had to find some ways to help them stay warm. And so that uh, separating of sheep and goats was, again, a very typical kind of metaphor for them. But this brings us back to this idea that you are supposed to, if you're a believer, do good things. And I mentioned this key uh, Hebrew word, uh, which also is shown in the Greek, zedekah, which was something that was required of Jews. You can see that the prophets in the Old Testament, uh, the Proverbs talk about acts of zedekah, which were acceptable to God, more acceptable than sacrifices. You have in Deuteronomy that they were to do this generously. So there's really it's just kind of this emphasize of doing good work. And so, in some respects, we see that there are examples that Jesus uses. For example, feeding the hungry, showing hospitality to a stranger, visiting those who are sick or in prison. Those are worthwhile examples. And so many times when we had on the radio program prison ministries, they all point back to these passages and say, you know, God called for us and Jesus called for us to actually minister in the prisons. We have a ministry here even at the church where people are allowed to go into the prisons, and that is the case. But these are just some of the examples of loving kindness that we can be engaged in. Even if you've never been behind the walls of a prison, even if you only occasionally help people that are sick, loving kindness can be shown to your neighbor, even this afternoon, or to people that you know, people that you work with. And there is just a good manifestation of all of this. And what's so interesting is Jesus now, what you did to what? The least of these you did to me. There's a funny story. I think I have time to tell this. Uh, When George W. Bush was president... Uh, there were people that were talking about the need to be compassionate conservatives. And so one of the people on the Bush staff uh, wrote this uh, outreach to reach out to those in the poor, and he entitled it The Least of These. So it sent it around for various kinds of comments, and it came back with everybody scratching out the word least of these. And um, so he put it back in there after some of that. And so finally, one of the guys goes, I don't know what this least of these things is. And he said, well, that's in the Bible. I said, well, I never read the Bible. So this uh, whole idea of reaching out to the least of these just went over the heads of anybody that weren't Christians. But nevertheless, Jesus said, what you did really for the least of these is as if you have done them to me. And so he recognizes and helps us understand that if we love God, we should love our neighbors. And the way we treat our neighbors shows whether we really love Jesus. That's really the ultimate test of it as well. And so finally, as we get down to the end here, it's interesting. The way we treat others, I think, reveal whether we really love God. If we really love God, we should share our heart with all sorts of people. And it is natural for us to show love to the people we like. 
Remember how Jesus said, you know, when you show um, love or when you accept those that uh, certainly agree with you, no problem. But when you talk about loving your enemies, that's the great challenge. Because oftentimes there is a tendency for us to love people that are like us. But we don't like the people in the other tribe. And so I'm going to come to that in just a minute. And this applies, as he says, to the least of these. And so in Hebrew thought, they had a tribalism in the first century, which a lot of people are starting to see today in the 21st century. I'll get to that in just a minute. In Hebrew thought, your neighbor, your, when, when Jesus said your neighbor, they thought another Israelite. Not a Gentile, certainly not the pagan Gentile, certainly not the Romans. And even in the ancient world, there was this very sharp division between my people and everyone else. And uh, through those who really love God, we don't have to ask whom to love. We already see that. Or even how many times we're to forgive them. We are to love others. We are to forgive others. And we should know how to love our enemy. So I thought an application point, just in the few minutes before I bring Fred back up here, would be to recognize that tribalism has existed throughout the centuries. But we have a fair amount of tribalism today, don't we? And I thought I might just uh, pull some material from an interview we did a while back on the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. It was written by Jonathan Haidt, who's not even a Christian, and sometimes I bring a non-Christian on the program, and Greg Lukianoff, who is actually a First Amendment expert and a Christian. But they actually first started noticing this sort of tribalism and some really disturbing issues on college campuses ten years ago. Well, it was something that they wrote about in an article that appeared in The Atlantic, It had a different title, but the editor of The Atlantic decided, why don't you just call the article The Coddling of the American Mind? When the article came out, it got more response than almost any article in The Atlantic for like a decade or two. And so that's when they said, well, maybe we should turn this into a book. Now, to understand the book, you just really only have to understand what they call three untruths. And the third one I'm going to camp out on. But the first one was the untruth that they said, the untruth of fragility. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. You know, Nucci said, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And um, in case you like pop music, Kelly Clarkson had the song, same thing, right? Um, But that is not exactly what the younger generation, Generation Y, Millennials, Generation Z think about, because they are just the opposite. And one of the things that uh, Jonathan Haidt talks about is what he calls anti-fragility. There's sometimes things which are fragile, but they become resilient when you stress them. And a good example of that is, if you work out every day, those muscles get stronger. Or we've just been through a pandemic. If you got the virus and your immune system developed antibodies, now you're basically able to fend it off. So there are times which oftentimes where stressing something makes it stronger. But there's been this sort of desire to keep everything safe. And so they talk about the fact that we have this rise of safetyism. After all, these are a generation that grew up wearing bike helmets, and uh, you also had all sorts of attempts to keep them safe. 
I mean, you think of some of us that grew up, it's amazing we're alive today with all the things we went through. I mean, I, I never had a bike helmet and all the times I rode a bike. And I think of some of the crazy things I did there. I did rock climbing with, I mean, just think about, are we even here? It's amazing uh, that we survive. But now there's been such an emphasis on safety that it's creeped now into safe spaces. And they pointed out this is what was happening on college campuses. You know, I have to have my safe space. Uh, because after all, um, I want to not be threatened by anything that would be a contrary idea. And so then professors, because you had the safe spaces, had to issue trigger warnings saying, you know, we're going to talk about something that uh, might trigger some of you uh, and might be traumatic as a result. And, of course, we've pointed out before that if you look at the younger generation, they have a higher rates of anxiety and depression uh, than previous generations. Tomorrow on the Point of View program, one of the guests is Jonathan Teague, who is our pastor right here and kind of an expert, and um, a variety of others, uh, Chelsea Human and some of them, and they talk about the Generation Y and Generation Z, and Gene Twinge, who is probably one of the leading experts on the so-called iGen generation, Generation Z, says that they believe that one should be safe not just from car accidents, or sexual assaults, but even be safe from people who disagree with you. So that's the first one, the issue of uh, fragility. The second one is the untruth of emotional reasoning. Always trust your feelings. Okay, what go wrong there, right? Um, and again, they pull from some what's called cognitive behavior therapy, where people tend to get caught up in this kind of negative feedback loop in which these irrational beliefs become more and more powerful. And I'm no good. The world is bleak. My future is hopeless. I'm going to be talking about a program um, probably on the Wednesday program where they're now recognizing that all the broadcasting about the climate, you now have what's called eco-anxiety. People are convinced that the world is coming to an end. Well, from a biblical point of view, that may be true, but it isn't necessarily. But now you just got people that are just eco-anxious. We have people now that even though we aren't wearing masks, there's only four of you, I think, in the room wearing masks, and we have about a dozen people on Zoom, um, but there are people that have never left their house. They have been in that house, in the four walls of that house for months, and they may not be coming out anytime soon because that sense of fear. And so you can see how that one has manifested itself, even in the circumstances we found ourselves in. But the last one I want to spend a little bit more time on, the other untruth of tribalism, that life is a battle between good people and evil people. Now, the reality used to be with most of the liberal, liberals and conservatives agreed with this, and that is you and I may disagree about political issues, but I will certainly defend your right to hold a contrary view. And I used to speak on college campuses where sometimes the university professor would say, look, you know, I'm a liberal and I'm an atheist. This guy, Kirby Anderson, he's probably a conservative, certainly a Christian. But I wanted to give his view at least a hearing in the class. 
Does that happen on college campuses today? No, because the liberal, there's still liberals out there, you know, there are lots of, you know, uh, individuals that are in law firms and uh, working in different uh, uh, social media that are saying, no, we still need to have an open dialogue. But now the left is saying, nope, you don't belong on a Facebook page, you don't belong in a Twitter feed, you don't belong on the university campus. And so as a result, what happens is more and more, we may excuse the actions of someone which is in our tribe, but we vilify the actions of somebody in another tribe. And we actually say that these people have bad motives. It isn't that we may disagree, that we think we're right and you're wrong, but we know that we're right and you are evil. And so as a result, we need to cancel you. We don't even give you the right to express your point of view. And so, in some respects, by identifying this common enemy, it allows you to enlarge and even motivate your own tribe. And sadly, one of the things I've learned, even as I've been in South Carolina and Georgia, is more and more people are just kind of getting fed up. Because if you go to a liberal network, they're just going to talk about all the positives of progressivism and how evil the conservatives are. But if you go to a conservative network, they'll talk about how conservatives are right and how evil everyone else is. And some people saying, is there any place in the middle where at least we can have some level of agreement, commonality, and that whole division and tribalism is something that I think in some respects we see illustrated in, of course, Matthew 26. So anyway, let me, before we end um, up with our uh, time, talk about some people that aren't necessarily even Orthodox Christians who find themselves writing about this. First of all, Jonathan Haidt is not a Christian. He's a secular Jew, although he did write that with Greg Lukianoff, who is an evangelical Christian. And so you have them writing about what's been on campus and now making its way into society. You then have Senator Ben Sass who wrote the book, Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. And so this is a book that he published. He is a senator from Nebraska, went to Harvard, Oxford. Uh, matter of fact, he was roommates with the son of one of our probe staff members. So I've kind of known him for a long time and is writing about this division that's taking place in America. And then another book by Arthur Brooks wrote that at the time when he was the president of the American Enterprise Institute, Unbelievably gifted individual, um, a concert class, symphony class French horn player um, that actually played uh, for some of the symphonies like in Spain and a variety of other places. Then got out of that, got his Ph.D. at Syracuse University, became a professor at Syracuse at AEI. But anyway, nevertheless, wrote this book, Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. And again, recognizing that we don't just disagree with people now, we exercise contempt. Well, it's pretty interesting because, let's face it, I don't know any of the people on that screen could necessarily sign the doctrinal statement of Prestonwood Baptist Church, although all of them may be very sympathetic to Christian ideas. But nevertheless, you can say that when the world is saying that's a problem, then maybe we can be the solution. Because I think what Matthew 26 25 and 26 are really helping us understand is the need for us to be 
gracious individuals and recognize that perhaps the greatest cancer in our society today is tribalism. And so if nothing else, as Jesus has been taking us through these three parables, we learn what it's like for us to live in a world where indeed we need to exercise discernment, certainly where we need to use our gifts, but also to actually use, as that title says, how to love our enemies and really be the kind of gracious individuals that God has called for us to be. With that, let me turn it back to Fred.